1: Beings have long seen themselves as the center of the universe, as specially created creatures who are anointed, as above and beyond the natural world. Professor and noted scientist David P. Barish calls this viewpoint a persistent paradigm of our own unique self-importance, and argues that it is as dangerous as it is false. In his recent book *Through a Glass Brightly*, using science to see our species as we really are, he explores the process by which science has, throughout time, cut humanity down to size, and how we've responded. A good paradigm is a tough thing to lose, especially when its replacement leaves us feeling vulnerable and less important. Barish models his argument around a set of old and new paradigms that define humanity's place in the universe. The new emerge from provocative revelations about whether human beings are well-designed, whether the universe has somehow been established with our species in mind, the so-called anthropic principle, Whether life is inherently fragile, whether Homo sapiens might someday be genetically combined with other species, and what this means for our self-image. Rather than seeing ourselves through a glass darkly, as he puts it, science enables us to perceive our strengths and weaknesses brightly and accurately at last, so that paradigms lost become wisdom gained. The result is a bracing, remarkably hopeful view of who we really are and can be. David P. Barish is an evolutionary biologist and professor emeritus of psychology at the University of Washington. He's written more than 280 peer-reviewed articles and nearly 40 books, in addition to penning numerous op-eds in the LA Times, the New York Times, the Chicago Tribune, and other highly recognizable titles. He's joined me today to talk about his latest book. Hello, my name is Carrie Lynn Evans, and you're listening to New Books in Secularism, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Today, my guest is scientist and scholar David Barish, who's agreed to talk with us about his new book, Through a Glass Brightly, Using Science to See Our Species as We Really Are. David, thank you so much for joining us.
0: You're, you're, You're most welcome, Carrie. It's my pleasure.
1: First, let's start off, uh, if you could tell us a bit about yourself and how you came to work in your field.
0: Sure. My degree is actually in biology, in fact, in zoology. Um, When I was a a young child, I was fascinated by animals, as are so many. And I guess to some degree, I never outgrew that. Um, My particular focus was on evolutionary biology and animal behavior. Um, and then interestingly, I received a job offer at the psychology department at the University of Washington because of a recognition, really by growing numbers of psychologists, that the old Skinnerian paradigm of rats in mazes and rats in Skinner boxes pressing levers. Um, was useful up to a point, particularly for studying and learning, but it really didn't help for understanding the, the totality of how animals behave. And so I was hired by the University of Washington in 1973 to pursue a research agenda in animal behavior, which I did. Um, at the same time, I became increasingly intrigued by human beings, in part because um, I am one, <laughs> as as are we all, Um, also because in a psychology department I was increasingly exposed to that, and frankly because I married uh, a psychiatrist. And so uh, I taught her, uh, I'd like to think, a fair amount of evolutionary biology, and she taught me a fair amount of human behavior. And increasingly I came to feel, as I still do, that human beings are clearly animals and that for much of the insights that psychologists and sociologists sociologists and political scientists, etc., have been obtaining about humans, they've missed something I think really important, which is the fact that we're also animals and that there's a great deal of commonality between our species and others. And that once we take those really tremendous insights we have into evolutionary biology of other living things, there's absolutely no reason not to apply them to our own species. And moreover, every reason that we should do so. And so increasingly, I have, in fact, been doing that. Um, and this, this most recent book, Th- Through a Glass, Brightly, uh, the, the subtitle, I guess, says a fair amount, using science to see our species as we really are. Um, I'll just mention one other thing. The title comes from a modification of the Bible, actually, from Paul, where Paul says, uh, I'm paraphrasing, he says something like, uh, now I see through a glass darkly But then, meaning after he dies, he will see brightly and accurately, presumably, because he'll see God and God will see him. Well, I think the good news is we don't have to wait until we die and may or may or may not see God. But rather, we can use science to see ourselves through a glass brightly. And it's damn well about time that we do so.
1: Right. Okay. so. Yeah. Um, with regard to this book in particular, in two, in the year 2000, you published a book called The Mammal in the Mirror, Understanding Our Place in the Natural World. And you worked on that with your daughter, uh, Ilona Ann Barish. Um, so is through a glass brightly an extension of the line of thinking you began with this earlier book?
0: Yes, in a way it is. Um, that earlier book, The Mammal in the Mirror, was mostly concerned with explaining on a fairly basic level um, some of the fundamental biology that applies to human beings. So it was really an explication of physiology, anatomy, embryology, neurobiology, viruses, bacteria, all those biological things that make human beings. Um, On the other hand, through a glass Brightly, the, the more recent book really is an effort to um, explore those aspects of human behavior that and, and human existence that really had not been adequately understood or, or re- recognized in the past. Um, actually, I was originally, Carrie, going to title this book "Paradigms Lost." Mm. um which i which I still like as a title, but it turned out that Oxford had already published a book under that title that had huh. nothing to do with what I was writing about. It was all about naval architecture of all things. but but um so the the idea then is to look at human paradigms, ways we in in the past used to understand human behavior, or, I should say, misunderstand human beings. Um, and try to correct that. So unlike The Mammal in the Mirror, which is really a uh, sort of an accessible textbook trying to understand our biology, Through a Glass Brightly is really an effort to see how it is that so many paradigms of human, human beings are wrong and that we need to understand the corrections of them, how those paradigms um, have been lost and And good riddance, because we're better off with the new, more accurate paradigms, although I, I would acknowledge that it's hard to lose a good paradigm, especially when that paradigm places us in a uniquely powerful and important position, and frankly, thanks no thanks to r- religious beliefs. That position has been, I think, exaggerated um, and made really quite inaccurate and has misled many people for a very long time.
1: Right. Yeah, uh, and that leads us into the first section of your book, uh, which focuses on the underlying concept of human centrality. And you pick this apart on the basis of a number of problematic aspects of this notion. So let's set the stage with what you call piss-poor paradigms past. Uh, (laughs) You're good with titles. Uh, Fill us in on two of the antagonists of your book, the human tendency to cherish our beliefs and our anthropocentrism throughout history.
0: Yes, um, I would acknowledge, by the way, that I do like alliterations, and hence this <laughs> poor paradigm's past may have been going a little far, but I like, I like it nonetheless. <laughs> not
1: at all. I like it too.
0: <laughs> well, I think if we're looking first, let's say, at, at, the, at the, uh, the human tendency to not only cherish our beliefs, really, but to see ourselves as very much the literal, central Factor in the universe, literally astronomically, the center of the universe, and of course that's been the uh, that was the reigning paradigm for a very long time, the uh, the Ptolemaic conception of of of, uh, the solar system. Um, One of my favorites here, and I think it it exemplifies a lot of this thinking, was a uh, 16th century astronomer named Tycho Brahe, who was actually one of the great astronomers of all times. He was the best, the finest uh, naked eye astronomer, astronomers before the use of uh, telescopes. And he was remarkably effective and efficient in trot, uh, p- plotting the, uh, very precisely the existence of stars uh, and planets. And one of the things he found out, and I think this is a wonderful story about Brahi and about science and about the way the human mind works. One of the things he found was that the five known planets of the day, um, Mercury, Venus, Mars, Jupiter, uh, and Saturn, all in fact circled the sun. So he actually... was before Copernicus in this recognition. And he couldn't deny that, that this is his empirical findings demanded that. So he developed a model in which those five planets, in fact, circled the sun. But, and this is where I find it especially fascinating, he couldn't let go of the idea that the earth is still the center of things. So he had that system, the sun with those five planets, going around the earth and, and i it, it was i i i call this brahi's blunder um but what i find p- particularly intriguing here is that i think it's a metaphor of what many human beings have done they accept if they have to if the empirical evidence is scientific evidence is just so strong it can't be denied they accept what they absolutely have to but typically only on the periphery of their thinking, they still retain at the core that which they really want to be true. And so in Brahe's case, it was that the earth still is the center of things. Okay, those other things, the sun and those other planets go around, or those other planets go around the sun, pardon me. But that whole stuff, all that still goes around the earth. And I think that's a a fascinating example of a paradigm in which people – If they have to, if absolutely forced by scientific facts, they'll grant a little bit here and there, but they'll still retain their core beliefs. And often those core beliefs involves human being centrality. And just one example of this outside of astronomy is um, evolution. Uh, More and more people, even special creationists, even many religious people feel it incumbent upon them, they really can't deny the existence, say, of the evolution of antibiotic resistance. This has been demonstrated over and over again. Um, Even farmers who are often in the rural world opposed to evolution, they don't believe it, but they know darn well that various pests evolve resistance to antibiotics as do uh, pathogens, say, to penicillin. Um, So they'll accept that. But they won't accept the uh, equally obvious evidence that people also evolved. Evolution is not just something for for uh, insects or or uh, bacteria. And so again, I think that's a fascinating example of a um, paradigm's past where people grudgingly give in to science, but they still often retain. Uh, a belief in that which they still want to be true, and the very specialness of human beings—the notion that we are uh, the, cro- the products of special creation, that we're chips off the old divine block—people have a heck of a time giving off, gi- giving in on that. Um, and of course, evolution itself would be another example of that. Those who who absolutely refuse to accept. The reality, which we absolutely know now, if we know anything in science, we know the reality of evolution, but they still cling to special creation. Um, in the United States, something like 44% of people believe in evolution of people and the other 56% don't. So we've still got a long way to go.
1: Hmm. Yeah. You also talk about uh, something you term motto which is uh, a psychological phenomenon we're susceptible to that's similar to anthropocentrism in some ways. Can you tell us a little bit about this?
0: Sure. Now, anthropocentrism is well known. It's the phenomenon of seeing human beings as the central um, figures in the organic world, relating everything to human beings. Um, I think there's another term that I, I introduce in this book, uh, that I call motocentrism and that is comparable in some ways to anthropocentrism it's it's the basic notion that that the way things are at this moment in time is unique in the history of the world that whatever we're seeing what we're observing what's happening now has somehow never happened again um Are there any number of examples of this? I guess one is the notion that children are uniquely out of control. They don't listen to their elders. We've got big troubles. We've never been here before. Well, of course, we we have been here before. Uh, You can go back to the Greeks and complaints about exactly that. So again, just like we tend often to see human beings as the biological, theological center of the world, there are many people who tend to see the times they're living in now as the chronological center of the world. Things have never been this way before. Um, I would at once, th- and I, I think that's a problem. Um, I think it, it, the problem being that it gives us a unique status in the world. On the other hand, I think a real problem here as well is that to some extent, what I call... <laughs> motocentrism, I think, really is unique uh, in some ways. Uh, many biologists now geologists are recognizing what they call the Anthropocene, the time when human beings are uniquely responsible for major changes in the world, and most of them, not changes for the better. So I think there is some truth to the moto what I call the uh, the moto-centric idea or notion that things are special, particularly with regard to um, human threats, namely global climate change and nuclear war. Those are two things that really do threaten not just human life on Earth Mm -hmm. but all life on Earth uh, in a way that I think really has not been threatened before. So in that regard, I believe that motocentrism probably is accurate.
1: Okay. So you've, you've mentioned briefly um, the role that religion has had to play in uh, bolstering this sense of um, anthropocentrism. Um, so tell us how that age-old question of the meaning of life is impacted, for example, by the notion that we are not divinely created favorites of God.
0: Yeah, th- there's a certainly a very ancient belief in this, that... Um... Again, we are—we were created in God's image. We are special compared to everything else. Um, one of my favorite ways of looking at this actually derives from one of my favorite science fiction fantasy writers, the late Douglas Adams, um, in his book, A Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. There's a marvelous scene uh, that I refer to as the whale of Magrathia, and in this in this circumstance, our heroes in a spaceship are approaching a um, planet of Magrathea. and it turns out that some uh, a defensive system um, is fired at them with some nuclear warheads aimed right at them, and they're about to destroy the spaceship. Whereupon, uh, one of the heroes, one of our heroes, presses the uh, magic button, a very special big red button called the. Infinite improbability drive, which, when you press, causes events of infinite improbability to happen, and one of them is that those that uh, nuclear warhead is transformed into a, a sperm whale, and the sperm whale, looking about as he's falling down to the planet, mm-hmm. says sort of plaintively, "What what is my purpose in life? what, what is my purpose in life?" As he Plummets to the planet. Um, Now, I think that's an interesting metaphor because we are formed in many ways not unlike the whale of Magrathea. We are formed by equal improbability, well, not equal, it's not infinite improbability, but a, a comparable, in a way, improbability. Our particular egg and a particular sperm combined and formed us. The notion that by virtue of that we have a purpose is. I think all of biology teaches us every bit as absurd as that this uh, sperm whale of Magrathia had a purpose. He was formed by random processes, um, and we are too. And this is pure biology. It's one that people of a theological bent have a very hard time accepting. They almost inevitably believe that they were created. Each of us was somehow created... With a purpose that God had a uh, a goal for us in mind, a special purpose, a preordained function, and that our job is somehow to figure out what that is. Um, now, I would argue that this sounds uh, uh, rather pessimistic. Initially, I would argue that that we have no more purpose in life than no more preordained purpose in life. Then, uh, then that poor, unfortunate whale whose blubber was soon to be spatter the the Magrathian landscape. Um, Now, that doesn't mean that our lives need to be purposeless. But I think biology teaches us that it is a a complete myth to think that we are somehow born, created, established with a God-given purpose in life. We are just thrown into the universe, as Heidegger said, as the the existentialist said, or as the whale of Magrathia was, if we want to have purpose in life, and we certainly could, then it's up to us to establish that purpose by how we live. So I think in that sense, biology teaches us that even though we... It's an actually very optimistic message that even though we are not created with a preordained purpose... We're certainly capable of purpose, but it puts a greater responsibility on us. Then we have to establish that purpose by how we go about our lives, not looking for some extrinsic force that is somehow going to uh, imbue us with purpose.
1: So next you look at the intelligent design perspective on humans and their environment, focusing on why the view that the Earth and even the entire universe has been created specifically for us is a problematic idea
0: it's It's a very interesting concept. It's been called the anthropic principle the notion that um that the universe itself has somehow been designed with human beings in mind um it it's It's one that actually some f- physicists have surprisingly to me, taken rather seriously. Uh, and the basic argument derives from this, the, the, the observation that almost any change in some very, pre, even a very precise change in some of the um, physical parameters of the universe would cause dramatic changes, changes, really minor changes in the um, electric charge of uh, protons, or in the mass of an electron, um, or in the speed of light, or in any number of things. If these were just a little bit different, the universe would be entirely different and quite likely would not permit human beings to exist. Just another example, for instance, if the if the uh, expansion of the Big Bang was a little too fast, everything would have expanded completely, isolated from everything else, and the universe would become... Uh, sort of ethereal and there'd be no room for humans to evolve or if the big bang was not quite strong enough by just a little bit everything would have re-collapsed into something analogous to a huge black hole and again we wouldn't exist so there are people particularly theologians who use this as an argument for god Um, the notion that god is some sort of divine dial twiddler who, who arranged everything to be just as it had to be for, for, for human beings. It's an interesting argument. Um, I don't believe it for a minute, but um, I think there's some comments that need to be made on this. One of them, this may be obvious, is even if there was a divine dial twiddler, which I don't believe for a minute, why should that necessarily have been done for humans? Maybe it was done for wombats. Um, or, or for, or for um, vampire bats, we are just one of many creatures in the world that exist. Um, b- beyond that, um, it's interesting to imagine. So I think there's some real logical problems with this so-called anthropic principle. Uh, instead of anthropic, we could maybe look at a puddlethropic principle. Imagine a puddle who looked around one day and said, "Wow, isn't this amazing? The shape of the, the 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 uh organization of the um dirt around the outside of my puddle is exactly the same as is required to match my puddle. That must mean that God has designed the design of puddles to fit exactly me." Um, I think there's a logical problem here. Um, and there are other logical problems, not least of which is if, of course, if the universe was not the way it was and we did not exist, then we wouldn't be around to congratulate ourselves on the fact that we must have been the ultimate, um, goal of making the, having the universe be the the way it is. And, and yet another one here, um. I think there's a logical problem about the probability before and after events. Um, If you were to lay out a deck of cards, um, what's the probability that the way those cards were laid out, 1 to 52, would have been exactly the way it actually did come out? Well, the probability would be 1 in 52, the first one, times 1 in 51, times 1 in 50, going all the way back. The result would be uh, something like one followed by 60 zeros, the probability that you would lay out the cards just that way. And yet, that's the way they were laid out, okay? With this astoundingly low probability, probably lower than the um, the number of subatomic particles in the universe. So incredibly unlikely that you would lay out the deck of cards just as you did. But they had to be laid out some way. And so the way that they were laid out is the way that permitted us to exist. Had it turned out some other way, we wouldn't exist, and so we wouldn't be around to congratulate ourselves on that. Um, there are, I think, other arguments against against the um, anthropic principle. Um, one of them is more int- more intriguing, but I think harder yet to believe is the so-called <laughs> the multiverse notion that many physicists are coming up with now that our universe is just one of a infinite number of other universes. And we happen to be in the one in which we happen to exist. Um, I have a little trouble with that one that that seems to stretch credulity, but I'm not a physicist, so I don't know. But in any event, I think, I think that my, my, uh, baseline feeling here is that the anthropic principle, the notion that we have been, or that the universe has been designed just for us, is, is yet another example of a, a mythology that makes us seem much more central to the universe than in fact we, we really are.
1: Okay, let's turn to the concept of the separate self you talk about how recent biological discoveries are actually reinforcing ideas that Buddhists have had for a long time, that our sense of being unitary entities, uh, entirely distinct from our environment, is actually mostly an illusion. And if I rec- recall my biology readings, I think uh, this has to do with the microbiome and more. Do you want to tell us about that?
0: Sure. Well, I think the uh, the microbiome is certainly one, one part of it. We we are not as distinct biologically as we often like to think. We contain trillions, literally trillions of other organisms that are totally essential for our survival. Um, moreover, we interchange with our environments all the time. Our pores, for instance don't and our skin doesn't separate us from the rest of our environment, it joins us to it. We're not scientifically demarcated from the rest of the world. Um, things pass in and out. Oxygen comes in, carbon dioxide goes out, food, substances go in. We poop the material a lot of that material out again. We're constantly exchanging nutrients, oxygen, carbon dioxide. When we die, our molecules and atoms are recycled. Um, And this doesn't just apply to people. Ecology as a science has really as its basic underlying principle that the separation of organism and environment is itself really artificial. Um, You can't study North American bison without studying the prairie. The bison's produce the prairie. The prairies produce the bison. There really is no clear-cut distinction between them. Um, snowy owls and the the northern tundra, um, any number of things like that. Um, human beings, like all other living things, are not like uh, apricots, for instance, with an outer substance and then an inner um, nut-like thing that is really us. Uh, with this somehow distinction between the, the between the us and the rest of everything else. Um, it's we're, we're more like um onions, if you will. Uh, you can peel away onions, and as you keep peeling, you don't get a hardcore in the middle. you get the, the other side and then you keep on going out on the other side. Um, we're more like, if you will, um uh whirlpools in water, where the whirlpool itself appears to exist, our bodies, for instance. But it's constantly changing, substances coming in and out. There's no whirlpool that exists independent of the water that flows through it. And ecologists know more and more uh, that there really is no human body or or other animal body that exists independent of the flow through of all other living things. This is very close to the conception of uh, uh, ancient and modern Buddhism um now buddhists aren't fools they know we have bodies in that sense of individuals Uh, when when the dalai lama flies to a meeting his butt occupies a seat he has to buy a ticket you know Uh, there are bodies but those bodies constitute many ways an illusion or at least the illusion of isolation and um as i said ecologists are especially aware of that geneticists are too. I mean, our bodies don't last very long. The genes go on. Genes can get passed from one generation to the next. But of course, even the genes change and interact with the environment all the time. And so that, that notion that we exist as a absolute separate self is not only incorrect, but it's actually quite dangerous because I think it gives us the sense that we can destroy in many ways our environment without realizing that in a literal sense we are destroying ourselves
1: all right let's move now to the second part of your book where you focus more on how human nature has been shaped by evolution um, you argue that this perspective can show us how connected and continuous we actually are with all life forms on earth, which is kind of what we've just been talking about. Sure. Um, and you start with a question of intelligence. It used to be thought that we were the only species on earth capable of thinking. <laughs> what does the contemporary science tell us?
0: Well, it tells us something very different. Um, in the early days of ethology, the um biological science of animal behavior. Um, it was considered really a, a, uh, a major sin, if you will, to engage in um, anthropomorphism, in the notion that we can understand other animals by applying our own human inclinations and behavior patterns to them. We were supposed to look only at what animals did and never concern ourselves with what's going on inside, inside the animals' heads. More and more now, however, this has been replaced by what in ethology is referred to as cognitive ethology, the recognition that animals engage in all sorts of complex cognitive processes. We are not in any way alone when it comes to the ability to do this. Uh, I'll give you just a few examples briefly. There's a there's a wonderful dog named Rico uh, who was studied uh, very intensely, and the results were So fascinating that they were reported in the journal science. Um, Now it turns out for first thing, Rico knows almost 300 different words, each for distinct objects. So you you, you ask him to get a particular object and you have the pile of objects in front of him and he'll get the one you ask for. Um, What's more remarkable is this experiment. There were, um, Eight objects, maybe seven, I can't quite remember now, um, were placed in another room of which he knew all but one. He knew the names for all all but one. Then the experimenter would say, okay, Rico, go find the, um, the widget. And Rico would know all of these objects, except he wouldn't have the slightest idea what a widget is. He'd go into the room, he'd look around, and he'd come back with the widget. And this happened over and over again. Now, stop and think about that, as Rico evidently did. How did he solve that problem? I don't see how he could have done it, and the experimenters agreed, other than by saying, well, let's see, this is a little toy fire truck. That's not a widget. This is a teddy bear. I know that's not a widget. Now, here's something. I don't know what it is. It's the only one I don't know what it is, so that must be a widget. So he brought, he brought that one back. Now that's a really complicated intellectual process. Um, it's actually comparable to something that a three-year-old child would, in most cases, not be able to do. You got to be four or five, as it turns out. I'll give you one other example, so as not to go on too long. The, the, the renowned, uh, African gray parrot, Alex, who was unfortunately now deceased, uh, was remarkably capable of highly elaborate cognitive feats. It's an example. He would be presented with four objects. Three of them were green and one of them is red. And he'd be asked, all right, Alex, what's different? And he would pick up the the red one. Then he'd be given um, three hard objects, a key, a coin, a little bit of wood, uh, and also a cotton ball, and asked, okay, uh, uh, Alex, what's different? And he pick up the cotton ball. Now, once again, that, that requires a whole lot of intellectual competence. He'd have to understand that you're not asking him here to please pick up the red object or please pick up the cotton ball, because that would would be hard enough, but at least he could identify presumably a noun with with an object, but he's asked to deal with a concept difference uh, that's pretty intellectually sophisticated anyhow, those are just two examples and as biologists now we have a whole array of them so that uh, to maintain that somehow um, human beings are unique in our cognitive complexity, our ability to solve difficult cognitive problems is just not true.
1: You mentioned in the book, you use the expression uh, moving the goalposts with regard to these kinds of thinking activities, but also animals capacity. Well, I guess this is the same animals capacity for language. And uh, you mentioned that the, more that the more capacities of animals that were discovered, the more the goalposts were moved in terms of what separates our capacities from, from animal capacities.
0: Yeah, it's been quite fascinating if you look at the history of efforts to, um, to demonstrate that human beings are not other animals, that we are qualitatively distinct and, of course, better. Um, For a time, it was believed that humans were unique in using tools. Well, then Jane Goodall discovered that um, chimpanzees will insert um, sticks into termite mounds, draw out the sticks, the termites would be adhering to the stick, and they'd they'd eat the termites. Well, then it was said, well, maybe humans are unique in their ability to make tools. Well, it turns out that same termite obtaining technique involved actually breaking off all of the horizontal sticks, horizontal branches from those sticks, and actually creating a tool, making, designing the tool so as to be able to use it. Then it was claimed that maybe language is a distinct trait. Well, we have the language of the bees uh, where they are able to communicate with a tremendous amount of accuracy not just the location of a food source, but the relative quality of the food source. Um, Now, this is not quite the same as human language, but of course, all living things are distinct in one way or another. Um, And so it seems that inevitably, whenever humans discover or try to identify something about which, some trait on which we um, excel or we have that trait and other animals don't. Eventually, it's found that certain other animals do have them. And then we say, well, that's not the important thing. Let's look at something else. Um, One more example, brain size. It was thought for a while, well, human beings have the biggest brains. That's why we're so special. But of course, that's not true. Elephants and whales have bigger brains. So then they said, well, maybe it's not brain size, but it's the ratio of brain size to body size. Because of course, even though brains and elephants have bigger brains than we, are, uh, w- uh, whales and elephants have bigger brains than we do. If you take the ratio of their brain to body size, it's smaller because their bodies are so big. Um, well, but it turns out that there are some animals that have a larger ratio of, uh, of uh, brain size to body size, a number of squirrels, even some mice. Um, so that didn't work either. Uh, then it was thought, well, maybe we should look at the Metabolic energy expended in brains compared to the rest of the body. And so it goes on and on, ad infinitum. Whenever animals are shown to be comparable or in some cases even to exceed human beings, uh, usually with regard to some intellectual or cognitive capacity, uh, the the experts who are trying to emphasize human uniqueness and specialness will then say, well, let's move, we have to move. We have to move the goalposts. We have to look at something else. We have to make it harder. Now, there's no doubt we're special. We, you, know, we're, you and I, are having this rather elaborate conversation. We're using we're using computers to communicate. We write. We write um, symphonies, etc. So we're, we're clear. We clearly do things other animals don't. But of course, animals do all sorts of things that we don't. Bats use echolocation. Uh, honeybees can s- s- see things in in the ultraviolet, um, and so. Every species is unique in one way or another, and I don't really mean to diminish or argue against the uniqueness of humans, but rather the notion that we are so unique, and by virtue of our uniqueness, we stand as being qualitatively distinct from all other living things. They're all animals, we're people, We have a soul somehow by virtue of that information, they don't, and where I think that's particularly dangerous is that's given us permission to abuse, take advantage of other living things in a way that's immensely hurtful.
1: Hmm. You also use uh, an evolutionary perspective to break down some of the um, characteristics that maybe are. well, no, not entirely unique to humanity. But um, uh, you talk next about the relationship between parents and offspring. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's a contribution made by Robert L. Trivers. Trivers. Uh, yeah. Okay. And it, and what he talks about in terms of understanding the conflicts between parents and offspring through the lens of evolutionary biology. Because he argues that there's more to a tantrum than just children being primitive and badly behaved creatures until they grow up. So how does evolution figure in here?
0: Yes, this is a really important and fascinating insight that really is the almost entire to almost entirely to Bob Trivers. The, the, the old idea in the social sciences in particular was that um, parents and offspring are basically on the same page, that parents have all the information, they know what's good for the offspring. And insofar as there's trouble, it's because the offspring are behaving um, with uh, excessive egotism, or just ignorance, or maybe the communication between adults, or parents, and offspring just is aren't adequate. Eventually, the the uh, the the offspring learn that the parents have their best interest in mind, and they shape up. Um, but that the any areas of dispute or conflict between them is really due to a failure of communication. Well, what Bob Trivers showed is there may well be some simple failures of communication, but the problem isn't just that. The problem is that parents and offspring don't have the same interests. Now, a superficial view of evolution or just the way animals and humans work would suggest that they do. After all, we have genes. The reason we reproduce biologically, evolutionarily is to promote our genes, to get our genes projected into the future in other bodies, namely the the bodies of our offspring. But what that leaves out is that the genetic similarity between humans and their offspring is only 50%. It's not 100%. And so when we look at um, successful reproduction as a way in which parents get their genes projected in the future, which it is, that's really looking at the glass half full. It's not looking at the glass half empty, the 50% of genes that human, that adults have that, that the uh, offspring don't and vice versa. Um, so what happens and what Bob emphasized is that offspring, because of that disconnect that, um, uh, of, of one half, offspring devalue or selected to devalue parental cost by a factor of one half. To say that less technically, uh, what that really means is that they're only one half as interested in parental fitness as the parents are. And so um, offspring are, in a sense, genetically programmed to want twice as much in the way of investment as the parents want to give, because the parents are in a position to be able to invest in yet other offspring. They don't have all their eggs, in most cases, in one basket. Um, Or another way of looking at it, um, each offspring would be only one half related to its full sibs if its parents were to reproduce again. But it's 100% related to itself. And so it can be expected that you would get rivalry between offspring and other offspring and their, and, and their siblings because they're more interested in themselves than they are in their sibs. It's, it's that simple in many ways. Um, and also they would be likely to, uh, to be uh, in disagreement with their parents about how much parents should invest in their sibling as opposed to in themselves. They would like on, I mean, it seems a little weird to quantify it this way, but I think we can do that, that in some sense, offspring would like twice as much invested in themselves as they would in their sibling. Um, Yet the parents, insofar as they're equally related to both of their offspring, would be inclined to invest equally in both. So there's a a significant uh, opportunity for disagreement. Um, now then this also explains sibling rivalry, the rivalry between the two parents, the the, the two offspring, and also the conflict between parents and offspring insofar as how the parents would like the siblings to behave to each other. The parents are equally interested in both siblings. And so they're inclined to want the kids to play nicely with each other. Um, the offspring are also inclined to play nicely but they're less inclined than the parents are because they're twice as interested in themselves as there are in the, in the, in the sibling. So the, the, uh, one of the bottom line issues here is that when offspring friends, you raise the issue of, of, um, uh, tantrums, which I did discuss in the book, a tantrum. Mm-hmm. If you look at it in that way is, is really, I think, a way in which offspring attempt to manipulate the behavior of the parents So as to get more than the parents are inclined to provide. Now this sounds kind of, (coughs) pardon me, this sounds kind of cynical, but it is cynical. And the truth is evolution is cynical.
1: Speaking of cynical evolution. Uh, Next, you address the question of whether or not monogamy is the natural state of affairs for human beings, especially considering its dominant role in our history. Uh, And I believe this is a topic you've devoted considerable attention to elsewhere in your career. So please talk about this a little.
0: Yeah, well, I wrote the book, The um, Piff of Monogamy, with my wife, ironically, perhaps. Um and that doesn't mean that we're not monogamous because in fact we are. But there is this myth that <coughs> I'm excuse I'm sorry. Um no
1: problem.
0: There is this myth that once a human being once a person finds his or her perfect mate everything will be fine that there will be no more temptation on anyone's part. Well that's simply not true. Um if you look at the biology of human beings There's absolutely no doubt that we are not biologically designed for monogamy. And there's a great deal of evidence for it, such that if you were a um, uh, zoologist from Mars who came and observed the human species, you would conclude without a doubt that we're not naturally built for monogamy. Um, Both males and females are interested in some degree of sexual variety. Um, and hence in having relationships with other individuals. And that's simply because there is a biological payoff to each for, for, for doing that. For males, it's a more obvious payoff, namely being able to get one's genes, at least in theory, um, spread via the bodies of other females. And via females, it's a little trickier. It's less immediately obvious. But there can be any number of, in fact, are any number of payoffs there. They can receive extra resources from their extracurricular lovers. Um, They could, in some cases, receive better genes if they find themselves mated to someone who may be quite adequate as a caretaker, perhaps, but doesn't offer the best possible genes. And so uh, there could well be a temptation to find some other sexual partner more attractive than your own partner and one consequence of that is by finding someone more attractive unconsciously what evolutionary biologists recognizes that means if I were to reproduce with this individual I would produce offspring who would themselves be more attractive and hence I would be providing a uh, extra payoff to my genes now one could go on in this and and in fact the way this was initially really recognized was biologists like myself who often thought that many animals were monogamous were really quite surprised and all, in some cases shocked to see that um sexual monogamy and social monogamy in the animal world rarely go together even in birds which we had of which many species we thought that that um They were not only socially monogamous, one male, one female rearing offspring, but sexually monogamous too. And yet, when we began to apply DNA fingerprinting to the offspring, we found that, again, depending on the species, from 10, 20, some species, up to 60% of the offspring were fathered by a male who was not the social partner of the female. And so cheating, if you want to call it that, is very widespread in the animal kingdom, nor is it unknown to to human beings. And I don't think that in itself would be a a surprise to most people. But I think it is important for people to realize this because those who have bought into the myth of monogamy um, find themselves in a very difficult position when and they almost always will find themselves somewhat attracted to someone else other than their officially designated partner. And when that happens, um, it can be very painful. They may, if they brought, if they were brought up in a strictly religious uh, orientation, they may think, oh my God, I am a uh, incorrigible, bad person, incorrigible sinner of some sort. it's not what it means at all. It means that you, you're, you're a healthy mammal. Um, it doesn't mean you have to act on it, but you should not devalue, denigrate yourself just because you find yourself to have a bit of a wandering eye. All people do. One question then is, what do you do about it? And people have that wandering eye, again, I want to emphasize, because of their biology, not because they're um, nasty, uh, evil s- s- sinners. Um, Beyond that, I think many people, when they buy into the myth of monogamy, find themselves um, – what's the word I'm looking for? When an automobile is hit from the side. Um,
1: oh, oh sideswiped.
0: Side swipe. side sideswiped. Uh, um, when they discover that their partner has had some interest in someone else, not even necessarily acted on it. Um and I think it's important, again, to recognize that doesn't mean that your partner doesn't love you or isn't a good person. It means, once again, that they're healthy individuals. And so I think an important thing about overcoming the myth of monogamy is to take have a more realistic perception of our own biology uh, and realize that the fact that monogamy is not natural. And that may be a dramatic statement for many people. What? Monogamy is not natural? Well, it's not. It's not biologically natural for either men or women. But that doesn't mean, A, that it's not possible. Plenty of people are monogamous. And B, it doesn't even mean that it's not desirable, because there's much to be said for monogamy. In particular, If you look at those animals that are at least somewhat monogamous monogamous in there, I would emphasize there are very, very few that really are 100% monogamous. Um, You could almost count them on on one finger, not one finger, on the fingers of your hand. Um, You find that what seems to drive that monogamy, the adaptive value is biparental care. So that um, whereas females are usually – more inclined to care for their offspring than are males. That makes sense because the offspring come out of the female's body. And so there's no question but that those offspring are hers. Male, on the other hand, has to rely on the female. Uh, There's that old saying, mommy's babies, daddy's maybes. And so one payoff of monogamy is insofar as monogamy is really maintained, it increases the chances that not just the female but the male as well will be actively engaged in the care of the offspring, and that can be for the adaptive value of the offspring for sure i mean e- even though we know that it's possible, say in human beings for a single parent t- t- to rear offspring, it's hard um Human beings are very helpless at birth. They need all the help they can get. And so, if you could have two parents helping, there's an advantage all around. Um, And monogamy is one way of increasing the chances of having biparental care, having a commitment, not just from the female, but from the male as well. So, the bottom line here again is that monogamy is not natural, but it is possible. Um, It may even be good, but knowing that it's not natural the the the, um, the the way that can help us all is by recognizing that we almost certainly will have to work at it. Um, right. And one can argue, and I, I argue in the book that one of the real uh, defining traits of human beings is that we're able to do things that are unnatural. I mean, we can't do totally unnatural things. We can't flap our arms and fly or something. Um, but we can we can learn to play the violin, we can learn a second language um you know we, we can but but these things require work, and I think we can do something unnatural, like monogamy, if we choose, but we have to work at it, we have to recognize that we will have to work at it. It won't come naturally. it's not something imposed upon us or granted to us by God um it's something like again the issue that I commented earlier about our, our meaningfulness in life. If we want our marriage to be meaningful as a monogamous phenomenon, and I'm not claiming that we have to do that. I I think people make up their own mind, but if you want to be monogamous, first thing you should learn perhaps is how hard it's going to be. And then you can decide if you choose to do that work.
1: Hmm. So what about war? This tendency towards organized killing seems to be an inescapable downside to being human. Can evolutionary biology give us any insight into this?
0: Yes, I think it can. And I think uh, to to some degree, my colleagues in evolutionary biology and myself as well have done a bit of a disservice in the past. Um, There's been a tendency to Uh, to do the opposite in some ways of what the social scientists have been doing. Social scientists for a long time have emphasized that war is a cultural construct, not a biological one. Whereas biologists have tended to increasingly argue, I think, that war is in our genes. I think this is very, very dangerous. And I think it's also untrue. Um, There's a great deal of evidence that human beings, like so many other animals are capable of violence but almost always that is interpersonal violence personal aggression personal violence um and it doesn't always happen people can go through their whole lives without it it's not like they have a um a built up need building up need like water under pressure in a in a in a uh, heated uh pot that eventually is going to boil over i've never I've never hit anyone in the nose. I've never killed anyone. Uh, I've never seriously injured anyone, and yet I suspect I'll go to my grave without feeling frustrated that I never got to act on that. Uh, We don't have an intrinsic uh, inherent need to be violent and certainly not to kill. Um, And yet I think many biologists have tended to make that mistake. We do have the ability to behave violently or the inclination to behave violently under certain circumstances, certain circumstances of threat or a high degree of competition over resources. But um, violence as a, uh, an instinct that somehow comes boiling out is simply not true. And all the evidence I know of is against that. Be- beyond that, there are many biologists and even some anthropologists these days who've argued that we have a, an intrinsic uh, inclination to go to war I think this is absolutely bizarre and absolutely untrue. There are many, many, there are many human societies in which there is a lot of, it's not really war. It's sort of intergroup conflict, much smaller numbers, much less technology. Um, But war itself really is an elaborate cultural tradition. And it's a very recent one. Um, not, Not, I don't mean last month or or last century it's been around five to ten thousand years that's a long time but it's not a long time in evolutionary history and so the notion that we have been primed or prepped through our evolution to engage in war is um really entirely unjustified and moreover and, and the reason i get particularly agitated by this is because um I think it is a very dangerous notion because it tends to justify uh, the use or the development of human war machines. Um, The the whole military uh, development on the part of many countries is supported by the belief that human beings are warlike, war prone, it's in our genes, it's instinctive. So we got to be there because even if we don't feel that way, others do. I'm reminded of the really important statement of um, suggestion by the late, great Carl Sagan, who said that um, extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. The notion that humans have an instinct for war is an extraordinary claim, and it's moreover an extraordinarily dangerous claim. And it requires extraordinary evidence. And that evidence simply is not there. Once again, just to be clear, there's plenty of evidence that humans can behave violently, even homicidally, but overwhelmingly, this is individual. Um, It's not a war phenomenon. And war involves, first of all, a lot of boredom. There's a lot of hurry up and wait. There's a lot of complex rationality behind the designing of weapons. When modern people go to war, they don't do it overwhelmingly. They don't do it in a a paroxysm of rage and instinctive need. They do it following orders. They do it as part of a complex social process that um, certainly has to do with biology. Everything we do has to do with biology. But the notion that we have a biological instinct for war is simply untrue.
1: Mm. Well, that's good to hear
0: yeah it's a relief and, and let, let me emphasize also carrie i'm not saying that something like this is true because i want it to be true i mean if the biology pointed in the other direction i think we'd have to face that um i think as scientists we need to look at what's real um what we know to be true but i think also we have to refrain from a um A tendency that I fear is particularly true among my biology, many of my biological colleagues, and especially those who are men. Um, I think men men don't necessarily love war, but they're more likely to be intrigued by examples of violence and especially lethal violence, not just in animals but in other human societies. And so they tend to study those human societies, like the Yanomamo of of the Amazon, who are known especially as the fierce people. And they are pretty fierce. Uh, And there are other, like the Munduruku of Bolivia. Uh, There are plenty of people who are fierce, human groups. But there are also plenty of human groups that are not, where war is completely unknown. And so to focus only on those groups where there is organized warlike violence to the exclusion of those that are not is i think um not only dangerous but i think it's playing to a um a bias kind of a y chromosome bias that we need to be alert to
1: Mm. so finally you talk about human progress as developing uh, excuse me developing along two parallel tracks that of biological evolution as well as cultural evolution, and how these radically different speeds at which these move can cause friction. So maybe let's uh, finish talking uh, along these lines.
0: Yeah, I think this is a really intriguing aspect of our human biology. It's clear that we, almost certainly more than any other animal, are strongly influenced by our cultural evolution. all these inventions that we engage in, I mean, the specific languages we speak, but even more so much of the technology that we've created. Um, and that cultural evolution moves very, very quickly. It's really a Lamarckian process. It doesn't wait for genes. Uh, it's re- it's the inheritance of acquired characteristics, not the biological inheritance, but the cultural inheritance. Uh, uh, computers were just invented uh, a couple decades ago. And they spread incredibly rapidly, not through biology, but through culture. At the same time, we're also the products of our biological evolution, which moves very, very, very slowly. It's a, a Darwinian process rather than a Lamarckian one. Now, I would argue that many, maybe even most of our problems as a species derives from the, um, the disconnect between the rates of our biological evolution and that of our cultural evolution. Uh, it's kind of like the uh, hare and the tortoise with the hare being cultural evolution and the tortoise being our biological evolution. And what happens then is those two spread out. They 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 proceed at such dramatically different rates that our... Uh, uh, the... Cultural innovations, or cultural evolution, if you will, presents us with, with circumstances, opportunities, uh, and also threats that our biology has simply not prepared us for. I'll give you just two examples, although there are many, one from animals, one from people. Um, animal case would be the, the uh, muskox of the, of the far north. Now, muskox have a long history biologically based, of how they deal with enemies. When their enemies approach, and and for gazillions of years, these enemies were wolves, um, they would form a circle with the adults facing out, with the juveniles inside. And this was a very effective way of defending these juveniles and themselves from wolves because they have great big Bony plates on their forehead, not not the wolves, the, the muskox, bony plates on their foreheads and sharp horns. It's really difficult for wolves to approach, to to uh, to, to make inroads into that circle. Um, these days things have changed. The major threat to muskox are not wolves, but people riding s- s- snowmobiles, they don't call them s- snow machines in the North, uh, and high-powered hunting rifles. What did the muskox do? Well, Typically, they form their trusty defensive circle and they all get shot. It's the worst possible thing they could do. Probably the best would be to simply take off and run as fast as they can over the horizon. But their biology has moved very slowly. It hasn't adapted to this new cultural experience. Um, in this case, it's the humans who are threatening the uh, the, the, the the animals. Um, in the human case, I think we're stuck with our biological evolution, which, again, moves us slowly in our cultural evolution, which has presented us with, again, just to continue the um, uh, example of weapons, we now, it's very difficult for a human, naked, unarmed, untrained human being to kill another one. Biologically, we're not well equipped to do that. But based on our cultural evolution, for instance, we have... Made tremendous, if you want to call them progress, certainly tremendous leaps, much to our liability, to our, our disadvantage. So now we, you know, historically we were able to kill then by rocks, by spears, bows and arrows, um, swords, uh, and of course muskets, guns, bazookas, submarines, bombers, and of course now atomic weapons. Um, and yet our biology has barely enabled us, in fact, really has not enabled us to come to terms with this. And um, I think we endanger the planet, we endanger ourselves, all other living things, because of this uh, disconnect. Other animals, for instance, um, rattlesnakes, who have evolved lethal armaments um, based on their biology, have also evolved inhibitory behaviors that prevent them, in most cases, from killing each other. Turns out if a rattlesnake bit another rattlesnake, it would kill that animal. Um, And so what rattlesnakes do is they press up against each other when they're fighting, and the one who wins is the one who pushes the other one over, and the loser slithers away. Um, We don't have those automatic inhibitions. So we've created the ability to kill each other in ways far more effective than rattlesnakes. But because this has occurred by this rapidly rampaging hair-like cultural evolution, our biological evolution has really been left in the lurch. And, And so as a result, we're stuck with this ability to kill ourselves, to destroy all sorts of things, maybe even life on Earth, without the inhibitions that even a rattlesnake has. And so I think this is a tremendous example of a problem where our biological evolution and our cultural evolution are dangerously, dramatically and dangerously out of sync. I think this is in some ways the greatest single problem that human beings face. And it, it doesn't only apply to violence and the use of weapons. I think it applies to problems of overpopulation, of alienation from a world, an artificial world, increasingly artificial world that we've created, for which our biology makes us uncomfortable. Um, A whole array of things um, that are real challenges, all of which, again, bespeak the fact that human beings are not above the natural world, but rather, in our case, much, even most of the dangers we face are because of the fact that we are one foot in a purely biological natural world or darwinian evolution and the other foot in a rapidly moving cultural world world of cultural evolution um and we're being stretched and threatened in ways that are really really worrisome i don't mean to end on such a unfortunate note because i think let, let me just conclude here by saying that i think that there really are a lot of possibilities human beings are the most um adaptive living things on earth um and if i may give a um a little story that i like it's not just a story i think it's true that provides a certain degree of optimism um i don't know how much you carry or your, your your listeners have Ask yourself this very simple question. Why is it that human beings, smart as we are, have a hell of a time being toilet trained? Um, (laughs) You know, it takes us three, four years sometimes to be toilet trained. Whereas a dog or a cat, by every criteria less smart than we are, can be toilet trained in a weekend. Or sometimes they don't even require training at all. They automatically pick it up. Well, why is that? Well, if you look at our evolutionary history and that of dogs or cats, they're really quite different. Dogs or cats evolved in a, a simple ground-based, two-dimensional world, um, where it's clearly not in their evolutionary interest to foul their own dens, and so they learn very, very quickly not to do that. Well, humans are primates. We, we evolved in the trees. <laughs> well, if you, if you evolved, you live up in the trees. You don't have to worry about where you poop or pee I mean, you know that's the problem for those poor unfortunates down down on the ground, and as a result, it's really hard to housebreak a monkey or an ape or a chimpanzee. It's one of the many there are other reasons too why right? it's never a good idea to have a non human primate as a pet you You can't housebreak them. You, you can't leave them alone in your house and it's certainly horribly cruel to keep them in a cage. Um, okay. So we have that problem. We're primates that we don't lend ourselves. We don't readily become housebroken. And yet does that mean that it's hopeless that our biological, uh, um, background has so, uh, negatively predisposed us to our, culture and houses that we're in big trouble. Well, hardly, you know, um, <laughs> just look around you. I, I would submit that everyone listening to this podcast is housebroken <laughs> toilet trained, And so we should celebrate that. You know, the fact that a primate can become toilet trained. So the fact that that can happen, that we can overcome some of our biology in the interests of our uh, of our interest, of our long-term interest, um, is a very encouraging thing. I think. Uh, I guess I would end by suggesting that a species that, uh, primate species, that can become um, toilet trained, maybe someday can become planet trained too.
1: Well, I like that a lot.
0: <laughs> Thank you. <laughs>
1: Uh so David I've taken up a lot of your time I want to thank you so much for agreeing to come on the show. Before we go though can you tell us what you're currently working on?
0: Yeah well actually I'd be happy to and that relates in some ways to the uh example I just talked about. I'm not going to write a book about toilet training although I've had a fair amount of experience with it with my children um who are now having that experience with their grandchildren with my grandchildren but um I am very concerned about our tendency to destroy the world. I feel that, our, that the long-term prospects of human beings on this planet are not very good, not just because of global warming and other things, but particularly, frankly, because of the dangers of nuclear war. And I'm currently working on a book about deterrence, deterrence theory, which is the primary excuse for the maintenance of nuclear weapons. I think it's a terribly dangerous, intellectually incoherent idea that has an enormous number of flaws based on some assumptions about human behavior that are, I believe, completely untrue. And so I'm working on an analysis, a very critical analysis of deterrence in the hopes that it may contribute in its own small way to pulling some of the uh, structural supports out from under the current nuclear wo- weapons reg- regime that is so dangerous, especially in the United States and to a lesser extent perhaps in Russia.
1: Hmm. Okay. Well, do definitely consider coming back to us uh, and talking to us to us about uh, that new book when it comes out.
0: I'd be happy to do that, Carrie
1: fantastic well thanks again for being on the show i really enjoyed your book i was so glad to have the chance to chat with you about it in person you're most welcome and and
0: inside, i want to add carrie that it's it's just wonderful i've had a number of uh, interviews of the sort and it's wonderful to talk with someone who actually read the book
1: oh hey (laughs) (laughs) my pleasure the pleasure was all mine (laughs) all right well thanks for that goodbye
0: goodbye now
1: I want to thank you for listening to New Books in Secularism, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Once again, I'm Carrie Lynn Evans, and I've been speaking with David P. Barish about his book, Through a Glass Brightly, using science to see our species as we really are. If you enjoyed this podcast, please write us a positive review on iTunes, post us about us on social media, or tell a friend. The New Books Network is a not-for-profit organization, so all the buzz you can help us generate goes a long way to supporting this work. I'm also interested in hearing from you about your thoughts on this podcast. My question for you this week is about whether Barish's book makes you feel any differently about your place in the universe. Do you think that vacating the spot at the center of the universe would make you feel any better about it or worse? Hit me up on Twitter and let me know what you think. You can find me on Twitter at Carrie Lynn Land, That's at C-A-R-R-I-E l-y-n-n l-a-n-d also i'm looking for a co-host for this show contact me with any questions or interests you might have about that and contact us if you have a book you'd like covered on one of our shows you can find out uh the network's contact information on our website newbooksnetwork.com also be sure to like the new books and Seculars and channel on facebook and twitter where you'll see every time we post a new interview Goodbye until my next conversation about new books in secularism.